In the 10th century BCE, Prince Menelik rode his horse through the streets of Jerusalem. Israelites surrounded him, bidding their farewells, but the 20-year-old prince could only focus on one thing, the priceless artifact he'd stolen from Jerusalem's temple, which was hidden in one of the wagons. The gates of the city were in sight, though. Menelik knew that he only had a little bit further to go before he was safe, so his caravan pressed on. However, as they approached the city's borders, Menelik spotted King Solomon waiting at the gates. Dozens of soldiers stood on either side of the Jewish king. Menelik froze. He assumed that the king had discovered his treachery. Perhaps he would be thrown into prison. Or maybe he'd be tortured and executed as punishment for the crime. But the prince decided it was too late to back out now. He needed to keep going. Menelik's horse stopped just in front of Solomon. The king gazed back at the Ethiopian prince on horseback. It seemed that at any second, Solomon's troops might attack the caravan. But the king didn't give the command. Instead, he walked over to Menelik's side, placed his hands on the prince, and prayed for his safe travels. Then, Solomon ordered the gates opened and allowed Menelik to leave the holy city. The prince had escaped Jerusalem with Judaism's most holy relic, the Ark of the Covenant. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Lost Tribes of Israel. In the 8th century BCE, the Assyrian Empire exiled thousands of members of the Ten Tribes of Israel. After they were displaced, these Israelites never returned to their homeland. Their location remains a mystery. Last time, we covered the wars that led to the deportation and disappearance of the Israelites. For centuries, Jews assumed the tribes would find their way back to Jerusalem. But for some reason, they didn't return to the Promised Land, leaving many to wonder if they'd found new homes somewhere else. This episode, we'll try to locate the 10 lost tribes around the world. First, we'll examine whether they migrated to Great Britain then we'll take a closer look at Beta Israel in Ethiopia, a group of African Jews that claims to possess the Ark of the Covenant. And finally, we'll analyze a scientific study that may connect a community in southern Africa to the Lost Tribes. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. 
The Underworld podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. At the time the Assyrian Empire invaded Israel in 732 BCE, the country was home to 10 of the 12 Jewish tribes. Once the Assyrians controlled Israel, they asserted their dominance over its people. The Assyrian army deported thousands of members of the 10 tribes to locations within their control. In the centuries after this brutal conflict, the two remaining houses, who lived in Judah, south of Israel, waited for the Israelites to return. Yet even the Judahites weren't safe. In the 7th century BCE, the Babylonians conquered Assyria and attacked Judah. Like the empire before them, Babylon exiled thousands of Judahites across their homeland. It was only decades later, when the Persians conquered Babylon, that it became possible for all Jews to return to Jerusalem. When the Judahites came back, though, they discovered the ten tribes of Israel were still missing. The Jews believed the Israelites must be lost somewhere outside the old Assyrian Empire. This brings us to our first conspiracy theory. Following their exile to Assyria, the ten tribes of Israel migrated far beyond the empire's borders. Eventually, the Lord sent them to a new promised land, modern-day Great Britain. To fully explore the theory, we need to go back to the time of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is known for burying Jesus after he was crucified. He's also said to be the person responsible for spreading Christianity all the way to Great Britain. And even though Joseph wasn't a member of the Lost Tribes, it's believed that his story can give us clues about the missing groups. According to a centuries-old legend, when Joseph landed on the shores at Glastonbury in southern England, he planted his staff into the earth. Then the walking stick took root and bloomed into a massive hawthorn tree. The tree only bloomed twice each year afterwards, once at Easter and once at Christmas. Apparently, this land had become sacred, and some say that hundreds of years ago, the Lost Tribes heard the story of Joseph of Arimathea, too. Though they'd already left Israel, they felt compelled to migrate to Britain. One of the biggest challenges to this theory is that if the Israelite descendants truly lived in England, their presence likely would have been recorded at some point. But there wasn't any indication of that until the 18th century. In the late 1700s, a man named Richard Brothers proclaimed himself a prophet. In a series of pamphlets, he said a small portion of the British population descended from the Lost Tribes. In fact, he wrote that this hidden group was God's chosen people. So Brothers promised to lead the English Jews back to Jerusalem to reclaim their birthright. But before he could begin the journey, the police arrested him and charged the self-proclaimed prophet with insanity. He spent the next decade in a psychiatric institution. Despite his isolation, Brothers' ideas spread throughout Great Britain. 
Other writers published works supporting his claims, convincing thousands of Englishmen they were part of an ancient Jewish tribe. The movement became known as Anglo-Israelism. In the 1870s, one of his supporters named Edward Hine published a book that he claimed proved the link between Great Britain and the lost houses of Israel. Hine's book offered 47 connections between England and the Israelites. One of his points claimed the tribes migrated by foot from Israel. He cited passages from the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah that referred to the Jews traveling to a series of islands northwest of Palestine, which he claimed were the British Isles, even though the archipelago is over 3,000 miles away from historic Palestine. All told, the voyage would have totaled to thousands of miles. The tribes would have had to walk northward out of Israel, cross the mountains of Lebanon, traverse Turkey, and weather the harsh winters of Eastern Europe to reach the western coast. Then, they would have had to journey across the ocean to reach Great Britain. But Hine was sure it happened. And he didn't stop there. Hine also looked to the book of Genesis, which referred to the Israelites as kings of people. He claimed this verse directly predicted the British monarchy. In another passage from the book of Genesis, God commanded the father of the lost tribes to populate lands all around the earth, in the north, south, east, and west. Hein believed this selection foretold Great Britain's expansive empire. Hein's book sold thousands of copies and inspired more British connections to the Israelites. Most notably, a few linguistic studies revealed a connection between English and Hebrew. For example, I in English is ayin in Hebrew, direction is derech, even mir is mara. Some believe these words were proof that Israelites migrated to Great Britain and influenced the lingua franca. If we put this aside, though, there's still one big hole in this theory. The Israelites were Jews, but most of the Brits who believed they were Israelite were Christian. I see your point, but this is where it gets tricky. Jesus Christ was arguably the most famous Jew of all and inspired billions of Christians across the world. So it doesn't seem that far off to imagine that the Israelites were once Jews and are now Christians. That's true. But there's another complicating factor about this theory. Those who supported it also asserted that their Britishness gave them a higher calling. It was their duty to conquer and populate the rest of the world, as it was their responsibility to retake Jerusalem. In short, England was God's favored nation. That's precisely why many scholars have accused this theory of being imperialist. Proponents of British Israelism seem to suggest that England had a God-given right to Jerusalem and Palestine. So it seems their true goal was for British colonization of those lands. While the legends behind the English connection to the tribes are intriguing, I think that's where the merit of this theory ends. After the deportation of the Israelites, documentation of their whereabouts is scarce, and I don't buy that Great Britain was their landing point. That's more than fair, though I do think there's something interesting about the Hebrew origins of certain English words. It's possible the similarities between the languages are a coincidence. Many languages share resemblances between words, after all. But it's also possible that they were brought to Great Britain by the Lost Tribes. 
or the linguistic overlap is simply due to other Jewish migrants coming to England. To me, most of this theory's evidence is circumstantial. Even the scripture passages Edward Hine uses for proof could refer to almost any country with missionaries, a monarchy, or nearby islands. I think you're right. Plus, I'm concerned the original theorists didn't actually care about the history of the 12 tribes. They may have just been looking for a way to supplant the Jews in Jerusalem and expand the reach of the British Empire. Right. While religion has always been a strong aspect of British society, there just aren't many accounts of where the tribes ended up or how they would have gone to Great Britain. The legend of Joseph of Arimathea is compelling, but that story wasn't recorded until probably the early 16th century. So it's possible it wasn't even true. For those reasons, on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most believable, I give this theory a one. I'd have to agree. I also don't believe there's much evidence supporting a direct link between the English people and any specific exiled tribes. For me, this theory is a two. Much of the British hypothesis descended from the story of Joseph of Arimathea, but another theory contains a legend that goes back even further, the Ark of the Covenant. Coming up, the Israelites take a precious relic to a new homeland. Love, it's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Some say that during the exile in the Assyrian Empire, the Israelites searched for a new land to call their own. And one day, they heard a rumor that their sacred artifact wasn't in Israel anymore. It had been stolen and taken to Ethiopia. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. After the deportation, the lost Israelites traveled to Ethiopia, where they still live today as a group called Beta Israel. In the 10th century BCE, David's son Solomon is said to have ruled all 12 tribes in a unified Israel. According to the Book of Kings, God bestowed great wisdom upon him, which helped the king become a popular and powerful monarch. Rumors of Solomon's wisdom spread across the region until they reached the Queen of Sheba. Her name was Makeda. And upon hearing the incredible king's story, Makeda arranged a trip to meet him. While there are conflicting views of this story, one popular version states that when she arrived in Jerusalem, Makeda tested Solomon with riddles. 
In turn, the Jewish king answered each question with great wisdom. The young Ethiopian queen was impressed. She immediately lavished Solomon with gold, spices, and other priceless gifts. In a show of gratitude, the king offered her anything she desired, and ultimately, she wanted him. For three days and three nights, Makeda and Solomon didn't leave his chambers. When their time together ended, Makeda returned to her homeland. But her story with the king wasn't over. Nine months later, she gave birth to Solomon's son, who she named Menelik. Years later, Menelik would return to his homeland of Israel to claim his birthright, the Ark of the Covenant. In 950 BCE, the 20-year-old prince traveled to Israel to meet his father. According to a 14th century Ethiopian epic, Solomon asked Menelik to stay in Jerusalem and help him rule. The prince declined the offer, though, choosing instead to return to his mother and throne in Ethiopia. Though disappointed, Solomon understood Menelik's decision. To protect his son, the king arranged for security to escort the prince back to Ethiopia. King Solomon called upon the firstborn sons of several officials who worked for him. He hoped their presence would provide Menelik protection. King Solomon's good intentions, though, had unintended consequences. A few days after Menelik's departure, Solomon walked to the temple to worship before the Ark of the Covenant. According to Hebrew tradition, the sacred wooden chest stored the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. The relic held unspeakable power and religious significance for Jews. Yet when Solomon entered the sacred tabernacle where the Ark lived, he gasped. The relic was gone, and he knew exactly who to blame. Solomon ordered his troops to pursue Menelik and his caravan. But by the time they'd begun their journey, the Ethiopian prince was already too far ahead to be caught. The soldiers never recovered the Ark of the Covenant. A few days later, Menelik and the firstborn sons arrived in Ethiopia with the Covenant. And while there are conflicting views about who actually stole the Ark of the Covenant, be it Menelik or someone else, the relic was still ultimately in his possession. Because the artifact was so holy, he'd convinced himself it could have only fallen into his hands through God's direct intervention. If the Ark of the Covenant was in Ethiopia, it was thanks to fate. According to Ethiopian legend, Menelik kept the relic. In fact, some Jewish groups believe it still remains in the country today. That's why much of Ethiopia's Jewish tradition traces back to the tale of Menelik and the Ark. While neither Solomon nor the prince descended from a lost tribe, their tale convinced many that Ethiopia was a holy land blessed by God. This had led some to believe that the Israelites migrated to the African country because they knew the land was sacred. And this claim has a lot of support. Several biblical passages allude to a Jewish presence in Ethiopia. Around 630 BCE, some 100 years after the Great Deportation, the book of Zephaniah referred to Jews living in Ethiopia. But ancient prophets aren't the only ones to discuss an African Jewish population. In part one, we examine the story of Eldad the Traveler. While in Tunisia, 
Eldad asserted that he was a member of the Lost House of Dan and that his people lived in Ethiopia. He also claimed to know the location of all ten tribes. Many Tunisian Jews didn't believe him. They found it unlikely that someone could know where every single one of the missing tribes were. As for Eldad's description of the rituals of the lost people, the Tunisian Jews took issue there, too. Since they differed so much from their own, they believed the discrepancies proved he was lying. Eventually, a group in Tunisia wrote to Rabbi Zema Gaon at the Jewish Academy in Babylonia to prove, once and for all, that Eldad was mistaken. At the time, the rabbi was considered the highest-ranking Jewish legal authority in the world, so his word was highly respected. But to the Tunisian surprise, Rabbi Zema gave the traveler the benefit of the doubt. He told them not to mind the discrepancies between Eldad's story and the actual practices of Jews. According to the rabbi, as long as the central tenets of the faith were followed, then the tribe still belonged to Judaism. Still, the rabbi didn't completely confirm whether he believed Eldad belonged to the house of Dan or that the Danites lived in Ethiopia. And it's likely that his letter back to the Tunisians, however open-ended, paved the way for other, more daring proclamations hundreds of years later. In the 16th century, based on Rabbi Zema's response, one rabbi stated that Ethiopian Jews were undoubtedly the tribe of Dan. And more recently, in 1973, the chief Sephardic rabbi in Israel also confirmed that those in Beta Israel were, in fact, members of the lost Israelites. These decrees were based on observations that Ethiopian Jews didn't display awareness of scripture written after 400 BCE. If true, that could mean the ancestors of Beta Israel arrived in the African country around the time when the lost Israelites would have migrated. Some scholars aren't as sure, though. They've pointed out the ancestors to the Ethiopian Jews could merely be the people of Judah, which are not considered the lost tribes. In their telling, the Judahites migrated to Africa during the Babylonian exile, which occurred over a century after the Israelites were deported. Additionally, Beta Israel has rarely used Hebrew in its translations or practices. It's worth pointing out, though, that the two dominant languages of Ethiopian Jews, Tigrinya and Amharic, are both still Semitic languages, like Hebrew. So it's possible that Ethiopian Jews speak in a tongue heavily related to the original Israelites. And the group still exists today. The State of Israel officially acknowledged Beta Israel as Jewish in 1975. Between 1980 and 1992, as many as 45,000 members of Beta Israel migrated to Jerusalem, a city they view as their holy land. In the past few decades, though, Ethiopian Jews have faced intense racism and discrimination in their new homeland. Despite their common religion, the Israeli government and law enforcement has treated the immigrants like second-class citizens. The complicated origin story of Beta Israel makes this an extremely difficult conspiracy to dissect. There's clearly a long history of Judaism in Ethiopia. However, it's tough to determine whether or not a people's ancestry actually dates back to the Israelites 
and not just the general Jewish population. Certainly, Beta Israel represents a strong Jewish community, but without written records, I'm not sure whether they're part of the lost tribes. I agree. It's definitely a tricky subject. However, there is compelling evidence supporting the claims that Beta Israel comes from the House of Dan. Across 1,000 years, three different high-ranking rabbis released decrees asserting that the Ethiopian Jews descended from the lost Israelites. That's true, though I think we can't necessarily take the proof they're claiming for the Ethiopians' true ancestry at face value. The first rabbi based his claims on Eldad the Traveler, and as we discussed, it's unclear if Eldad was lying. There is really compelling evidence from the Jewish scholars who say the Ethiopians only read older passages in the Torah. That would mean they didn't have access to later teachings, possibly because they were cut off from Jerusalem when Jews were exiled during Assyrian rule. But the Judahites could have brought the Torah to Ethiopia during or after the Babylonian exile too. That would fit many of the scholars' timelines, and it would mean the Ten Tribes didn't travel to the African country. That's also possible. Still, I think given the rich history and traditions of Beta Israel, this theory is definitely more plausible than our last one. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give it a 6. I'm still split over some of the gaps in this theory. It's true that the Israelites might have migrated there because they heard the legend of Menelik and the Ark of the Covenant. But the Judahites might have populated Ethiopia too as a way to flee the Babylonians. Both options are viable, so I think this theory is a toss-up. I'm giving it a five. Many scholars can't be certain either way about Beta Israel's true ancestry. In fact, it's been difficult to prove whether any group belongs to the Lost Tribes. While some ethnic groups may be Jewish, that doesn't necessarily mean they have Israelite heritage. So, in the late 1990s, researchers tried to determine, once and for all, whether a group was related to the Israelites by looking at their DNA. Coming up, One tribe in southern Africa undergoes genetic analysis. Now back to the story. The search for the lost tribes of Israel has lasted thousands of years. That timeline is largely because it's difficult to conclusively show that a group really is related to the Israelites and not just the general Jewish population. So in the 1990s, One researcher hoped to prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that members of an African clan were descendants of the Israelites. This brings us to our third and final conspiracy theory. Descendants of the Israelites migrated southward until they reached southern Africa and became the Lemba people. And in the 90s, genetic testing proved they were Israelites, thanks largely to the efforts of a man known as the British Indiana Jones. After years of writing on Beta Israel, British researcher Tudor Parfit journeyed to South Africa to give a lecture. While he spoke, Parfit looked out over the audience. Most of the attendees looked like typical white academics, but in the back, he noticed a group of black attendees wearing yarmulkes, a traditional Jewish skullcap. 
So after the lecture, the group approached him. They told Parfit they were Jews with ancestors who migrated from Israel to South Africa hundreds of years ago. Now they were known as the Lemba tribe. Parfit couldn't hide his disbelief. He thought the claims seemed historically implausible, and he didn't think they looked Jewish. But not only did the Lemba Jews persist, they invited the researcher to live with their tribe for the weekend. They thought this would offer Parfit the opportunity to speak with their elders and observe their practices. Parfit was too curious to resist their offer. If these members of the Lembo were so certain, maybe that meant there was some truth to their beliefs. Soon, Parfit traveled to the Lemba camp in what is now Limpopo, a province in northeast South Africa near the border with Zimbabwe. There, he met the elders, all of whom professed complete belief that they descended from the ancient Israelites. As Parfit walked around the camp and spoke with more Lemba people, he discovered that many of their customs appeared to have Middle Eastern or Jewish origins. For example, members of the tribe didn't marry outside of the Lembas. Because of their religion and way of life, they only wed other Lemba Jews. This custom struck Parfit as having origins in ancient Judaism. And the connections didn't end there. In their youth, every Lemba man was given a knife. Throughout their lives, they used the blade for the ritualistic slaughter of animals. Parfit viewed this tradition as distinctly Semitic and Middle Eastern. To him, this showed that the Lembas likely descended from a group in the Middle East. He was starting to believe the tribe's people could be telling the truth. Still, he couldn't explain how the Lembas migrated so far south into Africa. But he soon learned of a story that the group had passed down from generation to generation. According to the Lemba elders, the tribe trekked to a city called Sena. From there, they eventually migrated to southern Africa. While Parfit himself couldn't confirm if Sena ever existed, the Lemba spoke about it with utter certainty. In fact, one of their elders pointed to verses in the Bible that mentioned Sena. The tribe referred to the city as both a real place and a paradise. Historically, it was their home, but it also represented an eternal destination in heaven. When they died, the Lemba also said they'd see each other in Senna, and they asked Tudor Parfit to find it for them. For Parfit, the opportunity offered him a chance to dive deeper into the tribe's history, so he eagerly accepted their request. Perhaps in the passing down of oral tradition, the name had changed slightly. So he traveled to Yemen to learn more. Once there, Parfit visited a holy city called Tarim, where he met with a local Muslim leader. When he mentioned Sena, the man's eyes lit up. The Yemeni man leaned in close and told Parfit that the Lemba weren't referring to Yemen's capital. There was actually a town called Sena, just three hours away. Parfit's jaw dropped, though he was hesitant to get too excited just yet. He still needed more proof to show that the tribe came from Yemen. So he told the scholar a list of Lemba clan names and asked if any of them sounded familiar. In response, the man smiled and said yes. Most of the Lemba clan titles were similar or identical to the names of local families. Feeling buoyed, 
Parfit proceeded to hop in a van and drive to Senna. Three hours away from Tarim, he reached the ancient city. The land was dry and filled with dust-covered buildings. Only a handful of people still lived there. But back in ancient times, Senna apparently teemed with life. According to legend, 1,000 years ago, a local dam supported the city's lush farmland. Thousands of residents called it home. However, at some point in the 10th or 11th century CE, the dam broke. Without water, residents fled their homes, leaving the area almost deserted. Parfit believed this may have been the reason that the Lemba journeyed south. And the story of Senna's demise matched what many of the elders had told him. Now the researcher truly believed. The Lemba originated near Israel, traveled to Yemen during the exile, and then made their way south after the dam broke. But he still needed more definitive evidence to persuade other scholars. And before long, Parfit had it. By 1996, DNA testing had greatly improved, and scientists at the University College London were looking at the DNA of Jews who claimed to be descendants of the tribe of Levi. Specifically, researchers were looking at the Jewish priesthood, or the Kohanim. The term refers to the line of Jews descended from Aaron. He belonged to the tribe of Levi, who lived scattered among the other houses of Israel. In Jewish tradition, the Kohanim was made up entirely of Jewish priests. If a man's father was a priest, then their son would be one as well. So scientists at University College London wondered if there were any genetic similarities between members of the Kohanim. They hypothesized there could be common mutations in each man's Y chromosome. Within a person's cells, there are 46 chromosomes, Many of these change and mutate between generations, but the Y chromosome, which is passed from fathers to sons, is virtually unchanged between generations. These researchers found that Jews who identified as part of the Kohanim priesthood shared a specific Y chromosome marker that had been passed down for centuries. For Parfit, this was exactly the kind of evidence he needed to prove that the Lemba were telling the truth. So Parfit took oral DNA swabs of the mouths of all the clans who belonged to the Lemba. Then, the researchers sent the samples back to London to be analyzed and waited anxiously for the results. If the Lemba had a low frequency of the Kohanim mutation, that meant they weren't members of the tribe of Levi. It would be an enormous blow not only to Parfit's research, but also to the tribe's own identity. But when the results came back, Parfit was elated. The study found that a subset of the Lemba, known as the Buba, shared the same Y chromosome marker as the Kohanim. For Parfit, this showed an undeniable connection between the Lemba and the Israelites. Some skeptics didn't buy that these DNA tests actually proved the link with the Levites, though. They claimed that the Lemba could have inherited the genetic mutation from Jewish traders sailing down the coast who married members of the tribe. While that's possible, I think the fact that all Lemba must marry other members of the tribe is more telling. It shows how unlikely it would have been for outsiders to marry into the group. That's a good point. Based on that information, it's possible the Lemba haven't had a change in their genetic makeup for thousands of years. 
Plus, the presence of Jewish traditions is difficult to ignore, especially ones like the ritualistic slaughter of animals. Parfit claims that practice is mostly a feature of Middle Eastern society. It's easy to imagine the tribe of Levi holding on to their practices as they migrated into Yemen and then migrated further into Africa. While we can never know for sure, I'm fairly convinced. I believe the Lemba, specifically the Buba subclan, are Israelites, and maybe even a lost tribe of Israel. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give this an 8. The science backing this theory is strong. After all, the genetic makeup of the Lemba is almost identical to the current Jewish population in Israel. I will say, though, that I'm a little less certain that they're a lost tribe. Parfit thinks it's more likely that they're originally from Judah. For that reason, I'm going a little lower in giving this theory a six. Dozens of groups have claimed to be members of the Lost Tribes of Israel. There are, quite frankly, too many to cover in a single episode. They range from Japan to Australia to Great Britain and the United States. Considering how many people identify with the exiled Israelites, perhaps it's important to acknowledge that despite their loss, these groups have allowed their tradition and culture to endure, despite the distance. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kotovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.